Good afternoon from Financial Frameworks. This afternoon's podcast is a conversation with Dr. Philip Giles regarding the Federal Reserve, their mechanics, interest rates in the real world, and what uh, has happened in the recent past, and what we would like to think might be happening in the future. Dr. Giles has taught me an immense amount about financial systems over the past 30 years. We met at the Bank of Boston when he was instructing lending officers how to learn how to lend. Phil understands the working mechanics of banking systems, the Federal Reserve, interest rates, fixed income securities, and debt securities at an expert's level. He has taught money in banking and the previous topics to lenders and senior personnel at banks and financial institutions in the U.S. and internationally. Today, we want to start with a recent history of Federal Reserve activity, some background that I think that you will find useful, and then move on to what the Federal Reserve System is attempting to do today to control inflation while attempting to avoid a recession. Having this knowledge should be useful in making decisions that you make to prepare for the ever-changing future. Dr. Giles will be quick to point out that he doesn't have a crystal ball, but I believe his insights into the behavior of money, institutions, and interest rates are broad, they're deep, and we can use them to inform our own decisions and choices. So as we've talked about all the things that we could discuss today, Phil, and we have 30 years of background and walking across the Charles River in the dead of winter <laughs> after dinner at Legal Seafood. We have all this material. So what I'd like to start with today is a description of what the Federal Reserve mostly did prior to the 2007-2009 financial crisis and how those policies expanded after that. Take it away. Okay. Well, First of all, the Federal Reserve has a number of functions. Some of the functions are simply to protect the banking system, uh, but we're going to talk about monetary policy here. Now, the Federal Reserve is uh, an instrument of the U.S. government created by Congress with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And in that, there are two what's called uh, economic mandates. And the mandates are to avoid inflation and to promote economic growth. And we'll talk about uh, those mandates now as, as we uh, start off on our discussion. Uh, mainly, the Federal Reserve has a tool called uh, managing the federal funds rate. Now, the federal funds rate or the federal funds uh, are deposits that banks place with the Federal Reserve System. And uh, one bank can borrow from another bank uh, by using uh, federal funds. And the interest rate that they, uh, is an overnight rate, and the interest rate that is charged is called the Fed funds rate. Now, the Federal Reserve manage the monetary policy means that they control or they set a target for the Fed funds rate, and that can be infrequently, but they will spend on their daily using something called the Federal Open Market Committee or FOMC, uh, 
They go into the market buying and selling federal funds to keep the actual market rate at their target. And if we had a, a visual here, we would find that they are very, very successful at keeping the market rate at the uh, stated target. And that's over decades of time on a daily basis. Which is pretty impressive. Uh, I managed computer systems at the Bank of Boston that traded Fed funds, and the traders had a target uh, that they wanted. They didn't want to be holding funds at the Federal Reserve that they got charged for, and they wanted to buy as many funds as they could uh, from other banks and pay a low rate so that they would optimize what they were collecting and minimize what they were paying the Fed. Now, in the past, the Federal Reserve set a requirement that banks must keep deposits at the Fed, and that's called, called Regulation D. That's a little detail you don't need to know. And um, it used to be based upon the various bank uh, deposits. Uh, as of 1990, it was, ba it was a very simple regulation. It was a 10% uh, of uh, checking accounts that the banks had. And if you had uh, uh, more than that amount, that was called excess reserves. The 10% limit was called required reserves. And uh, banks uh, did not want to go below the required reserve rate. Okay, that makes sense. That came into effect in 1990. Yes. Now, uh, because of the, uh, as we're going to see later on, uh, the amount of bank reserves in the past was almost exactly equal to the required reserves. And excess reserves were very, very small amount because until December of 2008, the Fed did not pay interest on reserves and banks did not want to hold a non-interest bearing asset. Yeah, yeah. After December 2008, the Federal Reserve began paying interest on reserves, and that let banks or gave an incentive to hold more than the minimum. And so excess reserves in the banking system began to build up. Well, there was a few other things going on in 2008, wasn't there? <laughs> a few, yes, like Lehman Brothers collapsed and AIG collapsed and uh, bankruptcy of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It's just a few minor occasions there. And um, uh, a money fund broke the buck and all that. So that was the financial crisis, uh, which led to the global financial crisis, as a matter of fact. So that's when the Fed began to step in in a big way. And one of the functions of the Federal Reserve, besides controlling the Fed funds rate, is as what's called a lender of last resort. Now, the Federal Reserve doesn't like to make loans to banks, but in the case of an emergency, they will. And in the 2008 crisis after September 15th, the Fed began expending a loan portfolio to banks and other entities in order to avoid a what was very potentially a financial collapse of the U.S. financial system. That did not happen because of the Fed, as a matter of fact. Okay. So they expanded their monetary policy. 
Was that through the lending in addition to the Fed funds rate, or were they doing other things? Well, they they were, um, if you look at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, almost all of the assets that they had were treasury securities. And what I mentioned before, the discount window was usually a, almost zero uh, assets. But that, be, that shot up very, very sharply in 2008 and 2009 as the Fed began expanding credit to various institutions. For example, uh, they rescued a um, securities firm called Bear Stearns. They rescued an insurance company called AIG. Uh, they provided funds for money market mutual funds. So all of that greatly expanded the credit side or the balance sheet essentially from zero up to about a trillion dollars. And the three institutions you mentioned, none of those were banks. No, that's right. They were not banks. So that's a now, pretty radical departure. Well, yes, it was. I think in my personal view, although there was some criticism about this, I think the Fed knew what to do and did what they, they should have done. Now, as an aside point, as you well know, uh, the U.S. dollar is what we call the international currency and a, a very high proportion of international financial transactions are denominated in dollars. Now, along that side, uh, along that side, foreign banks dealing in the trade, for example, need U.S. dollars. And, uh, and they usually borrow it from American banks. But during the crisis period, American banks did not want to take a chance to lend dollars to a foreign bank. So the foreign bank then went to their own central bank, and the central bank of, let's say, uh, European Central Bank or whatever, went to the Federal Reserve and says, we need dollars. And there began what's called an international uh, assets in foreign currencies. They would pledge their currency to the Federal Reserve and the Fed would then lend them dollars. And that was a very needed and very successful policy that lasted for about two years. And the Fed's balance sheet is called assets in foreign currencies. And uh, it, it, again, it saves. That's why we talk about the global financial crisis. Right. It could have been a global financial cra uh, crash, which, which did not happen. And do we still do that? Uh, we the facility is there. It's again, uh, it was done uh, in March of 2020 during the uh, the, the COVID crisis, uh, but it, it is now I think at about zero. It deteriorated. It, it went down very quickly. Okay. But, so the Fed is lender of last resort, not just to American banks, but to any uh, international. Uh, uh, financial institution or international uh, central bank. So here we are in 2009, 2010, and the Fed's balance sheet has gotten a lot bigger. Yes. And, and so did it stay that way through uh, 2012, through the 2016, and, and did it go down at all? Did it come back up? And how did well, that, that affect the businesses? Okay, well, as from my previous comments, the Federal Reserve uh, began uh, uh, lending to a variety of institutions, domestic and international, and uh, that put a lot of credit uh, uh, on the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, 
uh, through the discount window and, and other facilities. Uh, that declined pretty quickly after about 2009. Okay. But uh, in that, uh, after that, we get into a new policy, which Michael is going to call QE. So we're, they're, now, they're still managing the Fed funds rate. The Fed funds rate has gone down. And now you'll tell us about quantitative easing. Okay. Well, here again, we, we had uh, a series of crises starting with uh, – uh, essentially, uh, September fifteenth, two thousand eight, with the with the uh, crash of um, uh, Lehman Brothers. So uh, again, and after that, we had a recession, and it's 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 labeled not just a recession; it was labeled the Great Recession. That's right. Which which was uh, the worst downturn we had had since the Great Depression of uh, the 1930s. So the Fed began to react in other ways. First of all, they lowered uh, the Fed funds rate to essentially zero. Um, and they also then began buying massive amounts of both treasury securities, long-term as a matter of fact, and what's called mortgage-backed securities, which are bonds issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac which and the bonds hold a portfolio of residential mortgages. So by buying them from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the federal institutions, they are not in, entering into a lot of credit risk, but they are providing a, a large amount of funding to the banking system. So purchasing those securities, uh, mortgage-backed securities, bonds have yields on them. So what happened to the yields when they were buying all these securities? Well, as uh, well, I'm not going to get into the mathematics of it, although it's kind of fun. Um, if you buy a bond, uh, the, uh, you drive up the price, and therefore you drive down the yield. So by, by massive purchases of treasury securities, mostly longer term, 10 years uh, and 30 years, and by buying mortgage-backed securities, uh, you drive up the, the price of the securities and you drive down the interest rate. So this, this policy is called quantitative easing uh, or abbreviated by QE. And it, we can, if you ever look at the beginning of quantitative easing, uh, the 10-year treasury rate went down and the treasury rate uh, forms a basis for such things as mortgage rates and also buying large amounts of mortgage-backed uh, securities, you again drive up the value of the mortgage and you drive down the interest rate on home loans. So that basically we are trying to stimulate consumer demand. So the net effect, if I understand it correctly, is that banks now have more money to make more loans and the rates that a consumer would pay for a mortgage or for buying a house would go down. Is that correct? That's exactly correct until March of 2022. So uh, especially, uh, again, we look at QE and phase, the first phase of quantitative easing began in uh, late 2008 and ended in 2014. And what that means is the Fed is buying large amounts of securities, both treasury securities and mortgage-backed bonds. Uh, 
And when they do that, of course, their assets begin to go up. So here's an example. At the end of 2007, the size of the Federal Reserve balance sheet was just under $1,000 billion or a trillion. By the end of the, the first QE in 2014, the Fed balance sheet was about $4,500 billion or $4.5 trillion. And all of that difference was simply adding securities to the Fed's balance sheet. So that's money in the system that banks can lend and consumers can use at a really low rate. So we should have been able, should be able to buy a lot of stuff. Is that right? Well, yes, that's a good point. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, if you look back at the years, let's say 2015, 16, and so forth, uh, interest rates were very, very low. Mortgage rates were very low. And other uh, consumer uh, borrowing rates were low. And you recall that created a huge demand for homes, uh, home buying, as well as consumers. And just look at the price of automobiles, whether it be used cars or new cars, they went up very, very rapid pace in that time period. Thank you, Phil, for providing a comprehensive overview and all this information with regard to the Federal Reserve. And secondly, for setting the stage for discussing in greater detail in our next podcast how quantitative easing has worked and affected us since 2020. We've divided our conversation with Dr. Giles into three parts. You just heard the first segment. The second segment will cover the Fed's actions from 2020 to today, because a lot of what is happening today has been dictated by the recent past. The third podcast will continue our conversation with Phil, and we'll focus on quantitative tightening, the Fed's response to inflation today, and thoughts on recessions. Thank you for listening to Financial Frameworks, and thank you to Dr. Giles for providing us, in a very concise way, information about the Federal Reserve that we can use as we peer into the future when we're making financial decisions. Tune in next week for round two of our Fed conversation.